You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We have your friend in the next room. She's already told us that you're gay. You give us the names of others and we'll go easier on you. Committee will please come to order. Homosexuals must not be handling top secret material. The pervert is easy prey to the blackmailer. It started this lavender scare. It started this systematic campaign to identify and remove all suspected gay men and lesbians from the federal civil service. It was the most wonderful country in the world, and you should serve it. And then I found out they didn't want me. I was called to the FBI office. They wouldn't allow legal representation. I was a scared kid. They wouldn't reveal the evidence. They said, we have information, you are homosexual. Do you have any comment? And they would threaten exposure. I submitted my resignation. I lost my job at the patent office. That was the end of it. I was out. The people that I got rid of, they were faggots. I didn't give a hoot. Get rid of that son of a bitch. Put him on the bread line. Culturally, we were sick. Sinners, sexual perverts. We were worse than communists. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. Today I'm talking to the director of The Lavender Scare, Josh Howard. It is a new documentary that is available on PBS or at finer local art house theaters around you. Definitely check out the website, thelavenderscare.com, and be sure to enjoy this interview. I want to know a little bit about you, and specifically, how did you get into the news business? Yeah, I was always uh, fascinated by journalism and uh, politics, and uh, my first job was for a local politician as his press secretary, and one thing led to another. I eventually wound up at Channel 2 in New York in the investigative unit. I spent 23 years at uh, CBS, as it turned out. How do you even get into being a press secretary? I'm sorry to like keep digging deeper, but it's just what a fascinating first job to have. I had uh, worked for a local newspaper in Brooklyn. And uh, actually, I had just begun my uh, freshman year at NYU. I was also uh, somewhat involved in uh, local politics in Brooklyn and was working for a guy who had been elected, uh, who had just gotten elected to Congress and uh, offered me a job as his uh, press secretary. And so I worked at a deal with NYU that I would spend one semester working in uh, in, in Washington, and uh, it turned out to be uh, four years, and uh, that job led to another job, and uh, never quite got back to my college career, but I'm on an extended leave of absence. I call this my gap of four decades. What was it like working with Mike Wallace? Oh, he was an amazing guy. I would, uh, you know, we'd be on the road working on a story and I would just, uh, you know, pinch myself that, uh, you know, I'm sitting next to a legend in this business. I, I obviously, I grew up watching, you know, watching him. And of course that was the worst possible thing you could say to him that, you know, I grew up watching you, but you know, it happened to be true. And he was just an amazing journalist and TV performer, which is, uh, obviously part of the job. You know, he would take, you know, C plus stories that I would uh, put together and just, uh, you know, make them A plus and hit them out of the park. He was just amazing to work with. Through news, you've been doing smaller size documentaries, even feature length documentaries when you're working with uh, like CNBC. 
how did you decide, I want to make this a feature-length documentary, The Lavender Scare, and make it uh, more of a, I guess, a public film to actually have a, a, a theatrical release? Well, yeah, this is my first uh, independent documentary, and I really wasn't planning on making one. I was uh, pretty happily retired from my TV career, and I just happened to come across this book by David Johnson called The Lavender Scare. And, you know, I guess those uh, feelings that, you know, a journalist has from time to time, uh, oh, my God, here's a story that nobody knows about and, uh, you know, a fascinating story. And I just found myself uh, working on this film. Really didn't have any plan for where it was going to end up or, you know, even how I was going to finance it at the time. I called up David. I tracked him down. We met for the first time, talked about the possibility of uh, doing, a, you know, doing a film. And, uh, and it was on from there. Did he help put you in touch with some of the actual subjects of the documentary? Absolutely. He's, uh, you know, certainly the, the basis of the film is his, his research. So he turned over all of his uh, files and, uh, uh, you know, all the work that he did, put me in touch with a number of the characters. We found some characters on, on our own and went in a you know, different direction in, in, in some cases from, from what he had done. But certainly the film would not exist if it were not for the incredible research that David did, uh, mostly in the 1990s, uh, you know, almost 10 years before I got involved. Was anybody hesitant to talk with you about the actual subject matter? David reports that uh, he did find some people were uh, not willing to speak with him. By the time we were working on it, uh, no one was really reluctant, and we were particularly surprised that the federal officials uh, who we tracked down were uh, quite willing to talk about, you know, what they did and, uh, you know, their reasons for, you know, enacting this policy and, uh, you know, and carrying it out. What was the atmosphere like before the early 1950s in the government as far as, was it an open secret as far as homosexuals working in the government at that time? It was, and it wasn't even that much of a secret. Uh, Washington in particular was, uh, uh, was a place where there was a fairly open and a public gay community. It, during the years of the New Deal, when the government was hiring lots of staff to work on some of the social programs of those years, a huge number of gay people moved to Washington. And there was a, a, a pretty open and vibrant community. It really wasn't until years later that uh, there was a reaction to that and this wave of homophobia began. I know people are more familiar with the Red Scare than the Lavender Scare, but I am very curious as far as, and this is a horrible mixed metaphor, but was the same brush used to paint both homosexuals and communists? Were the same tactics used across the board? It was very similar. The two groups were often conflated, uh, both uh, communists and homosexuals. It was thought that uh, you needed to have some kind of mental defect to be you know, either of those two things, that you were part of some kind of you know, secret society, that you were apart from the rest of the uh, American uh, you know, way of thinking. So these two groups were very similar. The big difference is that, in retrospect, very few people were discovered to be communists. Very few people lost their jobs as part of the Red Scare. But as it turned out, tens and tens of thousands of gay people lost their jobs. 
How did the actual filming come about for you? I mean, did you really rely on those newsman instincts and, and methodologies that you had honed over the years of doing that job? Pretty much. I mean, it's the, I don't know how to, you know, do it any other way. You know, we, as, as I said, I met with David and we, you know, talked about who the key characters might be. And certainly the, I think the most important person in the story is Frank Kameny, who was the first person to fight his, his firing. And he was the first person who we, uh, who we interviewed. But you know, in terms of telling the story, the, the thing that we would always try to do at 60 Minutes would be to find a story, but then humanize it and tell the story through the eyes of interesting and hopefully compelling characters. And that's that's the way I approached telling, telling the story. Frank Kameny was such a fascinating figure and just so relatable throughout the entire film. He is absolutely fascinating. You know, probably 5,000 people were fired before uh, before the government fired him, and he was the first person who didn't go quietly. He was the first person to say, you know, this is wrong, and I'm going to, you know, fight to keep my job. And he was just completely single-minded and convinced that he was right, even if the rest of society was wrong. And it was quite a fascinating experience to spend time with him. We are in the same month as Stonewall 30 years ago. And it's just, it feels like the gay rights movement had several major touchstones, but then, you know, it was still such a punchline. You know, gays and homosexuals were so touch punchlines in the 80s and even into the 90s and even in the early 2000s. What do you think it is that really helped turn that around? Well, I think to you know a large degree, you know, just public awareness of issues involving the LGBTQ community uh, really helped to change public attitude. But you know, it was the people back even before Stonewall. You know, it's great that you know we're observing the fiftieth anniversary of Stonewall now. But you know, it's as you know, it's seen as the beginning of the gay rights movement, and I think an important you know, message of this film is that the movement really began, you know, years before that with Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings and Jack Nichols and just a handful of other activists who really deserve the credit for being the first people to have the courage to stand up and, uh, and you know, pave the way for the progress that was made in, uh, in the generations that followed. What were some of the most surprising things that you found while you were putting together the film? I have to say, that really, the most surprising is the, is the subject matter itself. You know, I had no idea that uh, this had happened. But, you know, I'm, I'm of the age that I understand that, uh, you know, the, the 1950s was not a great time to be uh, gay in America. I, I was 14 when Stonewall happened, so uh, you, can, you can do the math. Uh, but what I had no idea about was, you know, the fact that the government was going about this in such a systematic way to track down and, you know, fire from their jobs, you know, every gay man and lesbian they, they could find. And it, it, it's something that, you know, I find really surprises audiences when they, when they hear this story. Apparently I can't do the math because I said it was 30 years since Stonewall and it was actually 50 years since Stonewall. I'm a total idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I missed that. But yes, that's true. It's 50. <laughs> I don't know where my head was at right then. 
Well, time really flies. I mean, I can't believe that I'm uh, I'm about to be 65. So uh, I'll do I'll do that math for you. What has been the response to the film, Ben? Yeah, it's gotten a terrific response from audiences and uh, you know and, and and some critics and and you know again I think the the, the big response I would say is uh, is surprise that this happened. What I do see changing, you know, I started as I said I started working on this uh, you know almost ten years ago, and I really did see it as just an interesting part of our history that you know needed to be talked about and and documented. But the feedback I get from audiences now is that there's a real relevance to the message of the film in terms of uh, how we think of national security and uh, minorities uh, and, uh, you know, as much progress as, as has been made in the past uh, Know, decade and more. I think one of the messages of the film is that uh, yeah, we really have to be vigilant and uh, protect some of the victories that we've that we've had. Do you now have the documentary bug? Are you going to be making more docs soon? I'm not. It is a bug, and I'm trying to recover from it. But I still have another uh, year or so of of work on this. You know, the half the battle is making the film, and the second half is getting people to see it. And I really plan to spend the next year you know, promoting it and bringing it to community groups and uh, trying to get the message out. So this, uh, I'm not really looking beyond that at this point. Well, I'm very excited to see that it's uh, showing on PBS pretty soon. It will be on PBS on uh, June 18th. Uh, there's a network broadcast, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And then for the rest of the month, there'll be uh, rebroadcasts on the local PBS stations and also on the uh, PBS digital channels. So we're really excited about that. So how about you? Are you still traveling around to film festivals and supporting it that way as well? Doing some of that. You know, it, it is opening uh, theatrically uh, tonight here in New York and uh, Los Angeles. I was in Washington this week for a screening there. It's going to be in Chicago next week, a couple of cities in Florida uh, coming up. And I'm, I'm also doing screenings for corporations and law firms and uh, government agencies that have LGBT groups you know, really express an interest in the in the subject matter. I'm very curious if anybody's ever come up to you after a screening and told you their stories as far as have they had they been fired or relatives that have been fired or directly affected by this whole movement that was happening. It happens so often. And, it, uh, you know, for a while it was really shocking to me how often it, it did happen. I mean, hardly a screening goes by at which someone doesn't say that they were affected uh, or they know someone who was affected. We were in Washington this week, and, of course, you know, Washington was the epicenter of this. But we had about 250 people in the theater, and uh, I did ask that question during the uh, Q&A session. A couple of dozen people raised their hands and you know, indicated that they either had personally been affected or they knew someone who was affected. And, you know, it, it always surprises me when, you know, when I see this and then I think, well, I did just, why, why is this surprising me? I did just do this film about how widespread this was and how many people were affected. And, you know, suddenly I see in front of me, and not just in Washington, in Memphis and St. Louis and Portland and all over the country, invariably somebody says, I worked for the government, they found out I was gay and I was fired. And it's just uh, astonishing to me. I'm very curious as far as how much of the film did you have to leave on the cutting room floor? Is there a much longer cut of this? 
Oh, only around three hours. I think that was our first cut was around three hours. But, uh, <laughs> and yeah, there were a couple of characters who we interviewed who didn't make it into the final, uh, final cut. But, you know, those obviously are very painful decisions that we do have to, that we do have to make. I wouldn't have cut a frame, but we do have to be aware that the, you know, the audience would be bored to tears if I shared, you know, every last detail. Each character, I think, advances the story in his or her own way. One of the, I, I was just reading, I saw one of the reviews this morning said, this is one of the few documentaries that actually seems too short. I took that as a, uh, as a, as a compliment. I'm not sure it was actually meant that way, but uh, that's how I decided to take it. Where's the best place for people to keep up with the film and your work? TheLavenderScare.com is our uh, website, and we update it frequently with uh, screening information and uh, you know, and news and, and, and other events. Well, Mr. Howard, thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure talking with you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. What makes them think they have the right to say what God considers vice? What makes them think they have the right to keep us out of paradise? They make our lives hell here on earth, poisoning us with guilt and shame. If we resist, prison awaits, so our love does not speak its name. The crime is when love must hide From now on we'll love with pride We're not afraid to be queer and different If that means hell, well hell will take the chance They are so straight, uptight, upright and rigid They march in lockstep, we prefer to dance We see a world of romance and of pleasure can see is sheer banality. Lavender night's our greatest treasure, where we can be just who we want to be. Round us all up, send us away. That's what you'd really like to do. But we're too strong, proud, unafraid. In fact, we almost pity you. You act from fear, why should that be? What is it that you're frightened of? The way that we dress, the way that we meet, the fact that you cannot destroy our love. We're going to win our rights. To lavender days and nights We're not afraid to be queer and different If that means hell, well hell will take the chance They're all so straight, uptight, upright and rigid They march in lockstep, we prefer to dance We see a world of romance and of pleasure All they can see is sheer banality Where we can be just who we want to be Let's-